The Lord be with you. Some of us can probably remember the heady days of the storied Edmonton Oilers hockey dynasty. That was in the 1980s, I believe. The great one, number 99, the man who still holds so many of the NHL scoring records, Mr. Wayne Gretzky. Back in about 1983, he was asked, what was the secret to his phenomenal success? And so the very best player in the game said, a little bit of homespun hockey wisdom that his father Walter had given him. I skate not to where the puck is going to be, but to where... (laughs) I I skate not to where the puck is going to be... (laughs) I'm going to start this way again. I skate where the puck is going to be, not where it has been. One little knot makes a big deal, doesn't it? (laughs) But beyond hockey or sports even, over years and years of people digging up quotable quotes, people have turned that little quotation into a sort of shorthand for next-level game-changer thinking. It's a way to describe a pattern for success with your head above the crowd and you're staying one step ahead of the competition. Maybe it's in business or in innovation and in trends and markets. Sort of like the advice to buy low and sell high or you got to spend money to make money. But not unlike most of those pat phrases, this sort of thing is much much easier said than done. Because, of course, the great one could say something like this, because he was the one gifted with an amazing, preternatural, once-in-a-generation talent, a lifetime of passion and practice. And like anyone who has ever tried to apply the great one's advice to any sport or activity, it's just... Not that easy. Sure, you can say, I'm going to be where the puck or the action or the right move is. But in practice, actually doing this, well, that's a different story usually, isn't it? It's just not that easy. Like so many congregations throughout history, today we find ourselves again gathered around a public reading from one of Paul's letters. These scriptural artifacts were penned as guidelines. Encouragement, teaching, works of passionate love and support for people that Paul knew through his many missionary journeys. This was a letter written to people that Paul knew and loved very dearly, as well as people that Paul probably argued with and irritated and annoyed sometimes. If you're reading all of these letters, you will find that a lot of this work involves the settling of disputes and arguments. Sometimes the details leading up to those disputes and the penning of one of these famous letters is right there for us because the gist of the problem is spelled right out for us in the letter. Sometimes Paul even names the actors, calling out the instigators and the contributors by name. 
But frequently, we can only speculate to the circumstances, the broad strokes reading of the church working itself out. We are, after all, reading someone else's mail. But each of these letters speaks to a church in a time and a place and a people with their own advantages and troubles. Here, in the letter to the church in Philippi, we're reading about a church in a Roman colony, one of his favorite churches, a source of joy for him. And he asks the congregation to care for one another in humility, and he writes, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. I don't know about you, but most of the time when I've heard this famous passage, which is, for good reason, one of the most popular texts in the whole New Testament, most of the time I've heard it treated as a sort of meditation, or maybe a little peek at the nature of Christ in space and time, even before the creation of the world. I've often seen this text used as a sort of theological detail, an academic exercise. But no, this is a much more plain and terrifying and straightforward bit of scripture than any of that. Paul is asking the gathered people of the church to have the mind of Christ Pattering our community, our daily interactions, our very lives on the self-giving, humble, and obedient example of God in the flesh. Jesus Christ, humiliated for the salvation of the world, the crucified and resurrected one, the ruler of the universe. For a start, could there be a more concise description of what the Christian life aspires to be? And could there be a more daunting and impossible example that we might aspire to? When I read this extraordinary bit of scripture, there is a grim part of me that does have a really hard time with it. And it's not just because of the overwhelming nature of this challenge. It's hard not to be more than a little disheartened, embarrassed even. Why are we, the church in history, in the world, and even in our own backyards, so historically bad at this? I'll spare you the stories because you know them well enough yourself. It's like they're in the news every second day. It's so embarrassing. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. It's just not that easy and not even close a lot of the time. But before I take us totally off track, down a rabbit trail of my own making, let's not pretend that Paul didn't know what sort of dysfunctional community a church could be. As a pastor and a companion 
and a teacher and a leader and a friend. He had seen his fair share of the church at its ugliest and its worst. Paul knew well enough how a gathering of believers can be a venue for competing egos and personalities. Dysfunctional sex lives and money and politics and power and race and class, sticky theological arguments and competing views of scripture used for selfish ends. The church can be petty and mean and selfish. We can so easily get sucked into the lure of power and hollow pleasure and ambition. We are so malleable to the patterns of this world and the currencies of our age. In the ancient world, Paul's first audience, the gods would have been seen as distant figures, ill-tempered and vengeful even. Those gods didn't owe you anything. You brought offerings to the gods, sure. You begged the gods for mercy. You poured out your gifts before them, hoping for some small measure of blessing or mercy. And the thing is, the ancient world looked at all of the rich and powerful people the same way. For Roman society in the realm of empire in a colony like Philippi, everything was about class and status and race and power, wealth and self-indulgence. Citizenship came with huge privileges. And if you didn't have those things, well, life could be real bad. Consider how drastic and revolutionary Paul's call to follow the way of humility, the surprising generosity of a self-giving God. All of that would have sounded so crazy, transformational for a rich dignitary, an an honored citizen, or for a slave, a poor person, or a widowed woman. This good news was liberation from values and practices of a cruel and unfair society. The amazing revelation of a loving God. An invitation to a new way of being people. We know that we too live in a society that is unfair and cruel in so many ways. The gods of our age demand a terrible price sometimes. We continue to live with and even take for granted forms of slavery and exploitation and discrimination. We live lives that are so often disconnected and isolated. But we are part of a human family. We are connected in ways that we don't even always see or understand or recognize. Because we are breathing the same air. We're drinking the same water. We're walking the same ground because we are all in the same boat. And this fragile vessel called Earth in the vast depths of space. We've come to know that the fate of life on our planet calls for people to truly consider others. The path to healing our Deep wounds of race and sex and power and the earth 
call for investments in people that don't make easy cash money returns. Friends, this is the way of being we are invited to. In year 20 or 2020, the church in the world will always have its holy work cut out for it. And the path ahead will always be challenging. Especially when we examine ourselves and we discover the ways that we are complicit and complacent, compromised, week after week confessing and receiving assurance. There are times when we learn that the system works for us. And it can be a really hard thing to let go of our power and our privilege Maybe letting go of some of our resources or our comforts. It's a real hard thing to realize that we have failed to notice the suffering of others. These are hard things to consider. Our family, the human family, needs human beings who treat others better than themselves. And these old habits of self-interest are, generally speaking, they die hard, and we are slow learners. Our practice as the church will always be imperfect, mortal and frail, flawed, and sometimes embarrassingly short-sighted. But the good news is that if we press into this together, the pattern of living the mind of Christ, making space for this way of seeing and being, considering others, examining ourselves, living and acting and being, the community of fumbling and often getting it wrong people called the church. In a place like Edmonton, a place like this becomes a venue for the mystery of God's work in humanity. So I would say, together, may we consider the hopeful possibilities of a place and a people that is pressing into this sort of active humility. I'm sure that many of you can name the times and places when people who lived this out have blessed you, cared for you, welcomed and sheltered you, embraced you. The Jesus way in the world when practiced and worked out by communities of people is beautiful. What a gift then to be a part of a community of faith that commits to this work together even though we fail so 